As we come to John chapter 10, we are coming to one of those famous, as I call it, chapters in the Bible. That is always a tremendous challenge for me. Anytime I come to the Bible where we're dealing with familiar territory, it's always a challenge. There's something to me very intimidating about it because there is a sense in which, well, people know this passage. And as you even turn to it, they're going to be sitting there thinking, oh, I know this passage. I've read it many times. I have found along the way that that is where some of the greatest surprises come in expository teaching. Because it is there I have found out how little we actually know about passages that we think we know so well. And I believe that John chapter 10 is one of those chapters. I believe there are certain things that we understand here in a simple way, but I'm not so sure we understand exactly what Jesus was doing as he did it and what he was saying as he said it. So I want to take great care in this first message here in John chapter 10 to get the setting right. If you look at John 10, we're going to be working our way from verse 1 down through verse 5 here. But I want to begin by contrasting John 10 and Psalm 23, because they both speak of the Good Shepherd, but from two different angles. If you could just hold your finger here in the Gospel of John and turn to Psalm 23. It is amazing when you think about how much is packed into Psalm 23 to turn to it and look at it and to see how short it really is. Six verses is not very long. And yet there is enough to think about for a lifetime. Psalm 23, verse 1. David, as you know, was a man after the Lord's own heart. David, in his youth, in the sovereign preparation of God, had been a shepherd. He had a lot to contemplate on as it related to the Lord working with him as a sheep, as he worked with his sheep. And he understood so much of the analogy that God himself has chose to use over and over in the scripture. In Psalm 23, verse 1, David writes, and he says, The Lord is my shepherd. It's as if he's sitting out there with his flock and thinking of all of the detailed care that he put into trying to keep each one of those sheep healthy. And basically, in those days, they didn't use the sheep so much to eat as they did for their wool. So there was a long-term relationship with each one of these little guys that developed over a period of time. And all the uniquenesses of every single sheep would become known to the shepherd over a period of time. David contemplates all of these things and he says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over, and surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Every line, every word, every expression here speaks of how David perceived the nonstop, detailed, specific care of God for his life. And then he closes it all up by saying that this kind of care and concern and love is going to follow him even into the next life, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so the one who is Christ's sheep is the one in this life that is provided for. Provided for in the sense that a human being needs to be provided for. Cared for. And in the end, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So when you look at Psalm 23, you're looking at the good shepherd from David's point of view, the point of view of a sheep. When you come to John 10, you are looking at the good shepherd from the point of view of the good shepherd himself as he perceives the sheep. And it isn't just in the 23rd Psalm, and this is something I think we need to realize, that this imagery 
of God as a loving, caring shepherd is found throughout the Bible. For example, in Psalm 100, verse 3, the psalmist wrote, We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. In Isaiah 40, verse 11, Isaiah declared, He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm. He will carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead those who are with young. In Mark 6.34, in the New Testament, Mark wrote that Jesus had pity on the crowds because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. And the whole idea there, the whole thought on, on the heart of Jesus Christ was, it wasn't that they didn't have leaders, because they did. It wasn't that they, they weren't official, because they were. It wasn't that they weren't identified and separate and, and given time to do what they were supposed to do, because they were. But the bottom line was that they didn't give the people the Word of God, and thus, in the end, though they had shepherds, because they weren't given the Word of God, they weren't able to cope with their lives, and they were then like sheep who had no shepherds. It would have been better not to have had the scribes and the Pharisees as their leaders than to have had nobody at all, effectively, if the people could have just had the Word of God. In Mark fourteen twenty-seven, before his crucifixion, Jesus referred to Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant, saying, All you shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, Smite the shepherd and the sheep, will be scattered. If you would like to destroy all of the sheep, just get to the shepherd, and then there will be nobody to lead them. And that is why it is no wonder that when you come on the scene at the time of Jesus Christ in the Gospels, it is no wonder that there are no shepherds feeding the Word of God. Because if you look at it closely, I mean really come in and look at it closely, and then back out and look at the big picture again, what you see is where all of the effort of Satan has been focused. It has been focused on the shepherd far more than on the people. The point was to smite the shepherds in such a way that the people would be scattered from God himself in terms of their own relationship with him. And the devil had completely in a wholesale way succeeded by that time. So when Jesus comes on the scene and he begins to feed them the word of God, he begins to lead them back to God as it were, he begins to lead them straight to God. It is no wonder that, again, the plan is focused in, in an even more distinct way to smite the shepherd that the sheep might scatter. And in this case, it is the great shepherd. The author of the book of Hebrews spoke of Jesus as the great shepherd. Peter saw him as the chief shepherd and that pastors and churches are under shepherds. They are underneath the great shepherd and they give account to him. But the whole point of all of this is that God in the Bible wants to communicate His great love and care for us. When you look at the work of a shepherd, it is non-stop care. When you study, for example, a book like Philip Keller's book on Psalm 23, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, it is absolutely staggering how much care goes into keeping a sheep healthy. So that when you talk about Jesus as the good shepherd, it is all imagery to say that God cares about every single detail of your life. So with that backdrop, with that kind of understanding, and in a, in a culture that dealt so much with sheep and shepherds and so on, and where they were used not so much for food, but for their wool, thus allowed to have relationships developed with them, Jesus then, in that context, brings us to John 10, verse 1. And there's just one last thing that we need to say as we get into this. And again, because I want to be very careful in entering into this chapter. There is no real break in the thought from John 9 to John 10. What you have at the end of John 9 is the problem with the religious leaders. And Jesus flat out tells them, you are completely, totally, utterly, spiritually blind. And they actually say to him, we're not blind, are we? And he says, yes, you are. In fact, you're utterly blind. 
And it's the idea of the blind leading the blind, and they both then fall into the ditch. So on the heels of what he has just said to the religious leaders in John 9, we enter into John 10. And thus, so much of what he is saying here in the beginning of John 10 is directed toward following false leaders and directed toward the sheep following the right leader and the right shepherd. And he uses imagery that they would all understand. And so in John 10, 1, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by Name. There's that long-term relationship, and he leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them. Shepherd doesn't drive the sheep, he leads the sheep. And the sheep follow him for, here's why they follow him, they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. There is so much bound up in these words concerning real salvation. There's so much bound up in these words concerning a real born-again relationship with Jesus Christ. We are ten chapters now into the Gospel of John, and every line is written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and come to be saved by Him and come to know Him personally. And thus the words of Jesus here. And we don't want to misunderstand them. So the first thing that we see here is the shepherd, or Jesus as the Messiah. And I say that for a specific reason, and it has to do with the type of sheepfold that is in front of us in the first five verses, because when we get to verse 6, we're talking about a different type of sheepfold. And that is not immediately apparent here as you read it, so I'm bringing it out in, in the outline at least, and then in the details. Here's what happened. Jesus Christ came to the fold, the sheepfold, of Israel. The sheepfold in the first five verses represents Israel. You need to understand that. In uh, John 1.11, as John began his gospel, he said, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. In Romans 2.10, Paul, writing of Christ and salvation, speaks of the fact that the gospel goes to the Jew first and then to the Greek. It's not a matter of Favoritism, it's just a matter of the way God worked out his plan of salvation. So Jesus came as the Messiah to the Jews. They were to be the light of the world. Then the light was to reach the whole world. So when you read the first five verses here, it is in the context dealing with Jesus coming to the sheepfold of Israel. And I think you'll see that unfold very clearly here. He says, Most assuredly I say to you in verse 1, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. Those are two different kinds of people that steal from you. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. So now we're talking about a sheepfold that actually has a door. And there is such a thing as a sheepfold that doesn't. To him, the doorkeeper opens. Now we're talking about a type of sheepfold that actually has a doorkeeper. And there is a type of sheepfold out in the country that does not. And he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. That is to say there are sheep in this fold that are not his own. That will come out and and be separate from some of the others that are in there. And when he brings his own sheep out, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger but will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers." What kind of a sheepfold is this? That's the first question we have to address here. This is what we could call a village sheepfold or a communal sheepfold or something like that. It's the kind of a thing where when people gather together in the towns and the villages as opposed to being out in the fields, as were the shepherds the night that Christ was born, that inside the town, inside the village, there was another kind of sheepfold. And this was built entirely different than the one you would find out in the countryside. This actually had a door. This actually had a roof. This actually had a gatekeeper, a porter. 
And it was all by design. The idea was that as shepherds came to town and as they brought all their sheep with them, there was a place then that they could all be gathered together and they could all be kept safe. And because there were so many, and because so much of the livelihood of the shepherd was bound in to keeping each and every sheep alive, every effort in this type of sheepfold was made to protect them Therefore, there was a porter, a guard at the door. He had to recognize you to let you in. You couldn't just walk up and say, Hi, I'm a shepherd and I'd like to have my sheep now. This is the kind of sheepfold that Jesus is talking about that he is referring to. On top of that, not only would the porter have to recognize you, but the sheep would have to recognize you. You could walk up and let's just say you fool the porter which you couldn't, but let's just say you did. You could then call out to the sheep, and you could say, Hey, everybody that belongs to me, come on, we're leaving now. If you weren't their shepherd, they would just look at you and turn away. But you see, sheep that are not raised for food, sheep that are not raised for that, they know the voice of their shepherd. So that when the right shepherd would come, the porter would open the door. When he would begin to call his sheep, they would recognize his voice. And they would then immediately separate themselves out of what may have been hundreds of sheep. Maybe it would be 50 of them or 25. Those are the ones that would respond and come out. And everybody knew that. So in the face of these false teachers who have caused such a ruckus about the man that Jesus healed and are trying to lead people away from Jesus Christ, he goes into this teaching and he uses that analogy. It is utterly brilliant. Jesus came to the fold of Israel. That's the picture of this type of sheepfold. It's a picture of him coming to Israel to call the true ones out that wanted to follow him. He came unto his own, and for the most part, his own received him not. But there were those that did receive him. So he came to the fold of Israel. That's the picture here. The second thing that we see here is that Jesus knows his sheep. And one of the reasons that he knows his sheep is because he is not a false shepherd. In the Old Testament, there was in the book of Ezekiel, for example, so much about the false shepherd who didn't feed God's people the word of God. For example, in Ezekiel, if you're fast with your Bible, you can turn there with me. In Ezekiel 34, in verse 1. And then there's another spot I'd like to show you in Jeremiah. God had so much to say about the false shepherds. And even in the process about prophesying that the true shepherd, the good shepherd, would come. But in Ezekiel 34, 1 says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Now please understand, he's not talking about guys out on the field keeping sheep at all. He is talking about those religious leaders that are supposed to be leading the people in the Word of God. For example, the whole case in the book of Kings when you find Josiah, and he gets a burden to clean up the temple because it's in shambles. And so he sends some of his guys in there to clean it up. Well, while they're cleaning it up, they actually find a copy of the Scriptures. And they brought it to King Josiah. And they were amazed as they began to examine it. It had been so long since the Bible had been acknowledged, since the Scriptures had been taught, since the people understood what God required of them, what God wanted to do for them, the whole thing was a marvel. And when King Josiah began to read it, he rent his garments, he tore his clothes, he began to cry out to God with all of his heart. And then they began to teach the Word throughout the land. And revival came as the people turned back to God in response to the Word of God. That's the issue here. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? And so your life is to be lived for the delivering of the word of God. You know one of the pictures in the Bible that I just love so much of the place of the word of God is in the book of Ezra. 
When in, in the book of Ezra, I think it's in chapter 8, that as they were there rebuilding the temple, that they came back to the Bible. And as they gathered the people together to read the Bible, the Bible says that as they began to read, all of the people stood to their feet immediately. Nobody asked them to. They stood. And as they read the scriptures, the people stood. And it was purely an act of devotion and worship from their hearts to God as His holy word was being read. So this has always been the issue with God. Because how can God shepherd His flock if His word is not ministered to them? How can God communicate to His people if it's not through His word? God has said He has chosen to honor His word above His name. Because in the end, it isn't the name that's so important as the work that He wants to do and the life of the individual that He loves so much. If you turn in your Bible to Jeremiah, to chapter 23, you find another very similar passage. It's so amazing to look at how God deals with the people that didn't teach the word that were supposed to in the Old Testament. God is so direct and so severe. And yet in our day, if there's any kind of talk against such individuals, you're labeled immediately as unloving and divisive and everything else. But you see, you're only in keeping with what God has always done. You're only in keeping with what Jesus did. Because again, if the Word isn't taught, you cannot know God because God has only revealed Himself through the Word. So to deny the Word from the people of God is to deny them knowing God and thus to deny them of the care of God, the comfort of God, the provision of God, the will of God, everything that God has to make up the abundant life. In uh, Jeremiah 23, verse 4, for example, God says, I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, now he's going up to another level, to the ultimate shepherd. He says, Behold, the days are coming, Jeremiah 23, 5, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Does anybody know the original Hebrew on that one? Jehovah? Tzidkenu. Or Sidkenu. Either one. Jehovah Tzidkenu. The Lord our righteousness. It is a complete, pure prophecy of Jesus Christ. When you come to John chapter 10, if you want to go back there in your Bible, you are coming to the true shepherd. You are coming to the ultimate expression of feeding God's people. You are coming to the ultimate care for God's people. You are coming to God himself in human form in Jesus Christ. He is standing in front of these religious leaders who have rejected every form of evidence. They want to kill him. He's just healed a blind man. There's absolutely no question in my mind, and I think yours if you've studied it with us, that what Jesus did with this blind man, he did on purpose. He could have passed by the blind man when they were threatening to kill him, when they picked up stones to kill him in the temple courtyard. And on the way out, as he was leaving, as he passed through their midst, he could have just glanced at the blind man and gone like that. And the blind man could have gone, and then healed and, and jumped up and started shouting and singing. Instead, the way he did it, he stopped, he, he, he spit, he put dirt into his spit, he rubbed it into his eyes, a gravelly mud they would make the blind man start screaming, which would attract attention. Then he sends him to the pool of Siloam, which would attract a following. Then he washes in the pool of Siloam, starts shouting, I can see. Then all the people that knew him all his life start shouting because they know that the greatest miracle that has ever been done has just been done because not since the beginning of the world had it ever been heard that a man born blind had had his eyes open, that he could see. It was all by design. Why? to gather attention to preach the word. That's the point. And preach it he does here. And he is doing it in such a way as to invite the sheep and to expose the false shepherds. And so in John 10, he says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, 
The same is a thief and a robber. What's the difference between a thief and a robber? Anybody know? A thief is sneaky. A thief is quiet. A thief is one who's proficient in the act of stealth. It's the idea of moving through a crowd and you run into a pickpocket, but you don't know that you ran into a pickpocket until you get down to the store you were going to and reach for your wallet to pay and your wallet's gone. You thought you bumped into somebody who said, oh, excuse me, sir, I didn't mean to jaw you that way. Sorry for the jolt. And you think, my, what a courteous gentleman. Only to find that they took your wallet in the process, but now they're long gone. It's stealth. A robber is somebody who comes along, stops you on the highway, pulls out a gun, or comes up to a stoplight and pulls out a gun and says, give me all your money. And then they may shoot you in the process anyway. It's violence. It's stealth and violence. What you see in the religious leaders of Jesus' day is both. You see stealth and you see violence. You see the stealth and how they slowly led the people away from God with their mixed bag of teaching as they mixed in more and more and more of man's opinions and took out more and more and more of the Bible. You see violence when they take Jesus Christ and murder him on the cross in the most painful, hideous form of execution ever devised. It was the Persians that invented crucifixions. It was the Romans that improved upon it and made it more ghastly. So if ever there was a picture of stealth and violence, it is these people right in front of Jesus as he is speaking at this moment. And the whole thing is the idea of robbing the people of what is theirs in a relationship with the Good Shepherd and God. God that he has come to reveal to them. And so that's what they had done. And so because he is not a false shepherd, he knows his sheep. He is the real thing in every sense and on the highest level. I like the idea because it's in his order, and I just put that in there as a form of evidence because you have to ask the question in John 10:3, who's the doorkeeper? I mean, if you read your Bible and you love it at all, you ask questions at every point. At least I do. And I think you do too. To him, the doorkeeper opens. And if you know anything at all about the other kind of sheepfold, which we'll talk about in the next message, you would have to ask the question, why is there a doorkeeper? And thus you have to say, who in this case is the doorkeeper? He says, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. There's an interesting scripture. If you hold your finger here again in John and just go to the last book of the New Testament. It's an Italian book, Malici. Prophet Malici. He ran an Italian restaurant and he wrote a book. No, Malachi. Last book in the, New Tes- in the Old Testament. And here is a prophecy that could not be any clearer. And to me, this is the doorkeeper who opens so the sheep can be ready to hear and come out. In Malachi 3.1, Jesus said... Behold, I send my messenger. This is God speaking. Behold, I send my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me. That's Jesus Christ. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus in John 10.3 says to him, the doorkeeper opens to him. And the sheep hear his voice. On the one hand, Jesus is using a a very well-known analogy of this type of sheepfold in a village or a town. And though the doorkeeper would be a well-known individual in that sense in terms of his function, his real point is very, very specific. John the Baptist came on the scene and he has one reason for living was to announce the good shepherd, the true shepherd. And when he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and said to follow him, basically his work was done. And when his work was done, he died. His life was taken from him. He had finished the work he had been sent to do, the very language Jesus used throughout his life. He effectively said everywhere he went and all the time, if anyone asked him, what are you doing? He said, I'm doing what I always do, my father's work. How long are you going to do it till I'm done? Then I'll be gone. That was it. 
And folks, that is it for all of us. If you see your life through the lens of Scripture, if you see your walk with God through the truth of Scripture, you will see that you will be here until your work here is done and not one second longer. And I love that thought. There is no waste in the kingdom of God. And for us as Christians, when one of us goes, we must face the passing with that truth. That every one of us will go the second our work here is done. God never neglects. God never forgets. God follows every track, every moment, every second. And when your work is done, He takes you home. Why? Because He's a loving God. All we see is this side. Man, if we could only see the other side. If we could only see the other side. That's why Jesus rose from the dead. You know that, don't you? That's why for 40 days He kept appearing and disappearing and appearing and disappearing because He wanted us to see the other side. The Bible tells us that men live all their lifetime subject to the fear of death. Jesus rose from the dead. He could have just gone back to heaven. So it's done. I'm finished. You guys do what I told you to do. But he came back and he appeared and he disappeared and he appeared and he disappeared. Teaching, 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 teaching what? Not what he taught before. But things now pertaining to the kingdom of God. Why did he do that? Because every one of the men that followed him died a martyr's death. Every one of those key guys died a martyr's death just like him. He came 40 days teaching, 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 appearing, disappearing to take the fear of death so utterly out of their hearts that when the time came to go, they could go rejoicing. When the time came to go for so many of the martyrs, when they were going to throw them to the lions, when they hadn't fed the lions in a month to make them starved or weeks or whatever, to be extra vicious, the martyrs often joined hands and jumped into the lions with singing. They were so full of the understanding of what was on the other side. Fox's Book of Martyrs is full of such accounts. The whole thing is to understand... Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The porter opened the door and then his time was done and he was gone. That was John the Baptist. See, what we so often look at from this side as maybe a very cruel thing, God may look at as the most gracious thing he could have done. My aunt died of cancer. She grew up Mormon. And I mean, she was Mormon into her 40s and way on. I don't know how old she was when I became born again at 19. And I went up to see her on a ski trip. I'll never forget, I stayed at her house for a week on a ski trip. I had my guitar, I was just learning to play guitar, and I remember one night she sat down, and she had her Mormon buddy there. She said, now look, you know I've been a Mormon my whole life. You know, everybody in our whole family on this side is Mormon. Somehow you broke out of the mold. And I want to know how, and I want to know why, and I want to know what's happened to you. And I want the whole story complete with songs. I said, complete with songs. She said, yes, and here's the tape recorder, and I want your story. She said, I want the whole story, and I want songs. And I'll never forget, I went down into the basement, no one around, and I just sat there with this microphone. I felt so dumb, you know? Like, what effect is this going to have on anybody? And I just gave my testimony, as simple as it was, into the microphone. Then I put the microphone on the desk, and then I played my acoustic guitar, and I sang a couple of songs. Then I turned off the tape recorder and I gave it to her and I was all embarrassed. I think I even said to her, I don't know if you even ought to play this for anybody else. I mean, this is just kind of a hokey thing here. But I did find him and I am going to heaven when I die. And she said, no, you, that's none of your business. Never you mind what I do with this tape. She said, this is my tape and I want it for my reasons. It was only months after that she was diagnosed with cancer. Then she wanted more tapes. By the time came when we had started our church and we were in the school and I did the series on Psalm 23. And I'll never forget, when we got to the verse of the valley of the shadow of death, I just sought God all week long and I, I found, found everything I'd get my hands on, put together a message to prepare people to die. So you could give that to somebody in the hospital. And I've been so blessed to hear the testimonies of how God has used that. Back to my aunt. And then when we got to, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, I thought about how few messages I'd ever heard on heaven. That's where I'm going when I die. So selfishly for myself, I did the heaven thing. 
I did the other one for a giveaway. The heaven thing I did for me. Because I wanted to know exactly where I was going. And I didn't want it to be just, you know, white robes, gold belts, and clouds that you could drive all around like bumper cars in heaven. And I'll never forget, and I put that message together on heaven. By then, she was in the advanced stages of cancer, and it was certain she would die within months. She called me and she asked me for those tapes specifically. And I sent them up to her. And she listened to them over and over and over and over and over and over as she was bedridden in her last days of her life. She died in her bed there in her home, Salt Lake. She had her Bible open, Psalm 23. The tapes were there, all worn out. And she had become a Christian, born again. Born again, out of a lifetime of Mormonism, which very rarely happens. She had found the Good Shepherd through his word. It wasn't my clever preaching. I don't think I'm very clever at all. But it was the power of the word of God to convert the soul. She found the Good Shepherd. And when her time was done, she went to him. In all my heart, with all my heart, I believe when I die, like Abraham and Isaac, I'm going to my people. I mean, doesn't that make all the sense in the world? If all these people have been saved, they're going to be all over heaven. It just doesn't make sense that God would just turn you loose where you don't know anybody. Just think about that. It's like your first day of school or something when you go to a new school and you're there in the classroom and your, your mom or dad has to come to the classroom with you and even then you're dragging and crying. Just imagine God throws you into heaven. Oh, by the way, I don't know what section you're in, but just find a seat. Gabriel taking you down and you're like coming to church, fight the ushers. You know, here, I want you to sit over. I don't want to sit here. I never didn't never in church like here and I don't want to sit here. I, I, I always sit on the left up toward the front. Sorry, it's taken by holier people than you. I'm so thankful. The Bible says that when you die, you're gathered to your people. I believe I'm going to see her right away when I get to heaven. And my grandmother, right away when I get to heaven. And my nephew who died when he was one years old, drowned in a pool. I believe I'm going to see him right when I get to heaven. And everybody else that has gone before me, that are of my people... The comfort of the good shepherd. He has not left one thing out. The doorkeeper went to heaven the moment his work was done. Jesus knows his sheep because he's not the false shepherd because of everything about his porter, John the Baptist, who opened the door for him. And because he is the true shepherd. You see, if you look at this analogy, this parable he's giving, the issue is focused on the true shepherd coming straight through the door. That is the issue. It is given in the face of these false shepherds who are trying to take people to God, quote, up another way by keeping their rules and rituals, which they've made up as they've discarded the Bible or as they've redefined the Bible to mean something else. They're trying to get up another way. None of them were coming straight through the door. They had what you could call, and we'll get into next time, doorless preaching. But if you look at the Bible, and you see who is standing here, what you have in front of these people is the one who alone came straight through the door into the fold of Israel. The one who alone could lead his sheep out that would follow him. He entered straight through the door as the only true shepherd could. You see, Isaiah seven fourteen said that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel. As Matthew wrote his gospel, reflecting on it all, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, you can look there if you want, it says, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin will be with child. That's Isaiah 7.14. And bear a son. And they will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. You see, the one who entered the right way had to enter the right way. The one who was the right shepherd had to enter the right way. And there's only one person that ever entered the right way. There was only one person ever born of a virgin, Jesus Christ. 
Micah 5.2 said, But you Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me one to be the ruler of Israel, whose goings forth are of old, how far back, from everlasting. There is no mistake about that prophecy. Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. And in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew validated that. When they had gathered, in verse 4, when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, Herod inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, Can you imagine men standing there knowing where the Christ is going to be born and they could care less? They're making no effort to go down there themselves. And so in verse 6, But you, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That was the prophecy of Micah 5.2 that is validated and lived out in front of us on the pages of the book of Matthew historically with Herod. In Galatians 4.4, Paul wrote and he said, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Hosea 11.1 1 said, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew 2 validates that. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and he departed for Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Joseph took him down into Egypt, and at the right time he brought him back out of Egypt. The Bible said that his arrival, his entry into the door, would provoke the rage of his enemy. It said that in Jeremiah 31, 15, it said, Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. That's in Jeremiah 31, 15, in Matthew 2, 16. See, what Matthew does is he just weaves us all together. In Matthew 2.16, it says, When Herod saw he was deceived by the wise men, he was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death the male children who were in Bethlehem and all the districts from two years old and under, according to the time which was determined by the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. In other words, when Jesus says, He who enters by the door is the shepherd. This is the entrance into the door, and there is nobody else that fits that description. Nobody. And what he is saying is, whether these men have taught you right or not, the Scripture declares it. And whether these false teachers have led you right or not, I have performed a miracle here today that, that shows the power of it. And I am the fulfillment of these Scriptures. And if you are one who wants to follow God, you will hear my voice and you will follow me. That's the point. And you can miss all of that in a casual reading of John 10 in the first five verses. You see, he was the right person. He was born in the right place. He arrived at the right time. He was summoned from the right country, Egypt. He was attended by the right sign. And his sheep did recognize his voice. In Matthew seven twenty nine. it says, For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. There was something about Jesus, something about his teaching that was unlike anybody else's for all of the reasons we have come to know and love. Jesus came to the fold of Israel. Jesus knows his sheep. And Jesus calls his sheep. I love this. Look at John ten three. John 10, 3. To him the doorkeeper opens. You remember how excited John the Baptist was the day Jesus walked up? It was the day of his life. He had been born for that day. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. What happens in real life of shepherd and his sheep, real sheep, is that if they're raised for their wool and not for food, you get to know that sheep, you get to know hundreds of sheep, and he will recognize your voice and come running to you. That's a picture Christ is trying to communicate. He knows you by name. 
For example, in Matthew 9, 9, Jesus passed by and he saw a man and he had a name. His name was Matthew. And he called him. And he said, follow me. And he arose and he followed him. You know who Matthew was? He was off by himself. He was an outcast. He was the most hated man in Capernaum, which is a whole study in itself, but he was. Jesus simply walked by. He had a name. He called him by name and he got up and he followed him. There's a guy named Zacchaeus. And he had his own problems in life. And Jesus comes by and He's up in a tree just to get a view of Jesus coming by. And Jesus says, come down here. I want to come to your house. And he just jumps down and he goes. And by the end of the day, he's saved. And he's gotten right with everybody in his life that he was wrong with and had ripped off already in so many ways. In John 1.43, the following day, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and he finds number nine. No, he finds Philip. We all have names. God calls us by name. When God dispatched the angel to Daniel's weeks of prayer, it was with a name. I want you to go to this man named Daniel. He called him by name. He finds Philip and he said, follow me, the shepherd leading the sheep. I love it. There's all kinds of different examples of this. When you think of Lazarus, think of this. Lazarus, Jesus is off ministering. Lazarus gets sick and he dies. His sister sent a messenger. You know the account. And they, our brother is sick. You've got to come quick or he's going to die. And Jesus says thanks for the message. And goes on about his business. Of course, they judge Jesus completely. Interesting study all by itself. In the work of God, in the will of God. They're angry flat out. How dare you? He's walking up and it's all, how could you? How dare you? And besides that, it's women and they're shrieking and they're wailing and they're emotional. It's quite a scene. This isn't some guys hanging out. What a chump. You waited too long. No, no, no. These are women. They're screaming. How dare you? How could you? You call yourself our friend. And Jesus began to weep himself. Not because it was catchy. Jesus began to weep because they just didn't understand. There was so much about him they didn't understand, and they're just judging him. They're angry at him. They don't have have a clue that he's about to do the greatest thing that he has ever done for them as a friend or their God. And he is also weeping over the, the effect of sin and the unbelief it creates. But by name he calls this sheep forth, Lazarus. He says, come forth. And there you see the calling power of Jesus Christ. When he calls someone by name, he can even raise them from the dead. And I suggest that's exactly what he does in salvation. He calls you by name to come and to turn from your sins and follow him. It is that that converts a man. It is not clever, emotional, mind-bending. It isn't the last song or the last poem that makes you weep. It is the call of God to you by name that brings you to conversion. Bumped into a guy in the bookstore. He said, I got to tell you this story. And I, I love stories. I think it's something with age. You just love stories more. You tell them more and you like to listen to them more. And he says, I have to tell you this story of how I became a Christian. He said, I was an avowed atheist my whole life. I mean, absolutely hardcore atheist. He said, you read a scripture today in the message that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He said, I have to tell you this. I have to show you this. He said, I used to get all these books in front of me. And this one night in particular, he said, I was into Greek and Latin and all of that. So I had a Bible, purely from a linguistic point of view. No concern really for the God of the Bible, even to read the Bible. And he said, so I wasn't. He said, I was in the back in the helps. He said, so I had several books in front of me, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm thinking about some thoughts, and I idly laid my hand on the Bible. And he said, then I happened to glance down. And he said, and he had a, it was so precious, he had a a plastic stick, he had a plastic sticker. He said, I put it here so as long as I live, I will never forget this moment. And he said, here I was, I'm not even in the Bible, I'm in the back. He said, I just casually had laid my hand, absentmindedly. He said, I just glanced over, and there I looked down. And he said, and right where my finger was, and he showed me the exact spot, it said, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He said, and all of a sudden, it was like a bolt of life went through me. He said, all of a sudden, it was as though God just called me by name. 
All of a sudden, I was born again. He said, God just opened my eyes and said, come now. And I came. And he said, and I've been born again ever since. And my life has never been the same. There was no one in the room. There was nobody talking to me. It was God. He brought me forth from the dead. That's what converts a man. Jesus knows his sheep. And he calls them. And he calls you by name. We're coming to the Bible. We're laying our hand on the promise. And we're saying, Lord, you said you wouldn't leave me comfortless. Let me know the comfort now. And you know. And he speaks to you. And he wraps his arms around you. And he loves you. And it's there he reminds you why he died for you. Because he knows every sin you've got. And that he covered every one of them. And he didn't forget even one. When he died for you. Why? Because he wanted to so cover, so deal with each sin. There would be nothing left to hinder you. This is the shepherd who has come through the door to call those out by name that would come. Oh my, John chapter 10, just beginning. I think we've laid the groundwork right now and go from here. If you don't know him tonight, give your life to him. This is your night. Not tomorrow night, not tomorrow morning. Now, right now. Open your heart. Ask him to forgive you. Just say, Jesus, I want you. I need you now. Forgive me now. He's looking straight to your heart. And he knows that moment when you've opened your heart. And it doesn't even so much have to come out of your mouth. as just the open heart that says, take me. I believe it all. I believe in you. I want forgiveness. I'm yours. Take me now and take me completely. And as you do that, he will lead and you can follow by his power. Let's pray, shall we? Jesus, we thank you that you are the the good shepherd. Lord, you have been so good to each one of us. You have lavished your grace upon us. We bless you and we praise you for the details of your love toward us and your provision toward us. We thank you for all the times, Lord, you have said yes to our prayers. But we thank you even more for all the times you've said no. Because in saying no... You gave to us your perfect will. When if it had been yes, and it had been our will, it would have been less than what you wanted for us. You have done all things perfectly in your time, and for that we praise and love and adore you. Lord, continue to open these things to our hearts. Continue to return us again and again to this truth in our minds that we might grow in our love and our rest. And and Lord, give us ears to hear your voice more clearly, not that you don't speak clear, but that we would need to be still and know that you are God and to let you speak in that still small voice and know that it's you. Speak, Lord, even now to each one of our hearts. Lead us forth in your peace and in the footsteps of righteousness. Lead, Lord, by your spirit and we will follow. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.